People of God, our hope and our prayer today is that you would be overwhelmed by the goodness of our God. And if you've come and stumbled into this place this morning and you are unaware of the goodness of God, my hope and my prayer is that you too will just be overwhelmed with how good and faithful our God, the one true God is. So today, we are going to dive into God's Word, Jeremiah chapter 2. So go ahead and turn your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 2. As you guys are turning there, I want to begin today with a question. And the question is this. Have you ever looked back on your life and made a trade that you really regretted? Have you ever exchanged something for something else that you look back and say, wow, that was a massive mistake? For some of you graduates, this might trigger a memory way back to like elementary school, third grade, where you were starving at lunch and you decided to trade your really tasty, but not all that filling bag of nacho Doritos for a sandwich that your neighbor had so it would fill you up the rest of the day. And so you decided to make that trade, but as you're making the trade, you get the sandwich and you know immediately something is not right. This wasn't a tasty peanut butter sandwich, but this in fact was a warm tuna fish sandwich left over from the day before, right? And the gut ache that you got the rest of the day told you this was a terrible trade. Others of you, uh, if you're a fan of sports, you might be aware of what is known as the worst trade in the history of sports. Uh, It's way back when the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees, forget this, $100,000 in a $300,000 loan to finance a musical. And what makes this trade so terrible is Babe Ruth went on to be one of the greatest baseball players to ever live, brought so many World Series championships to the Yankees at the expense of their rival Red Sox. But it has been rumored that Boston really enjoyed the musical. So maybe they think it's worth it. <laughs> maybe not. In my opinion, terrible trade. I got one more for you. Uh, in the early 18th, 1800s, uh, the French traded something to the United States. Uh, They gave us 530 million acres of land. That is all of the land between the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains in what was known as the Louisiana Purchase. And what did the United States give the French in return? A measly $15 million. So I'm sure for America, we're like, that was the greatest trade in the history of the world. The French are like, this is the worst trade. But the reason why I ask this question this morning It's because our Bible reading is going to describe the all-time worst trade in the history of the world. And church family, what we're going to see is that you and I are tempted to make that same trade in our lives today. So let's turn Jeremiah chapter 2. A little basic info. Prophet Jeremiah, he was the author of this. He wrote it 600 years before Jesus came onto the scene. And if you're taking notes today, we're going to really take away three observations and we're going to take away three applications from those observations. So with that said, Jeremiah 2, verses 4 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob. 
all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? God says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But here it is, Orchard Hill. My people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is the word of the Lord. So this text begins immediately in verse 4 with a command from God. This command was a command to hear. It was a command to listen. So graduates, this probably hasn't happened to you recently, but when you were growing up, I'm sure at some point, parents, you can uh, attest to this, they probably told you to listen up, right? (laughs) Or hear. And when they told you to listen up, they weren't simply saying, physically hear what I'm about to tell you, right? They were saying physically hear and do something about it. And that is really what God is saying to his people here. Not only hear what I'm about to say, but do something about it. In this passage, God is coming across quite stern, isn't he? He's coming across quite forceful. And if we ask the question, why is God coming across with force in this passage? Essentially, it is because the people of God forgot the goodness the blessing, and the faithfulness of God. And that is our first observation that we can make from the text today. Jeremiah 2, verses 5 through 8, it becomes obvious the people of God forgot the goodness of God. If we look down in verses 5 through 8, God goes through a laundry list of ways that he has been good to them. He goes through all these ways that he has blessed them. If you look in verse 6, He says that I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt. So if you remember the Bible story, uh, God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years, yet because of God's mercy, not because of anything Israel had done, God in his mercy and grace delivers the Israelite people from slavery, from their enemies, the Egyptians, and brings them out of Egypt. But it gets better. Not only does he bring them out of Egypt, what does he do? He brings them into this barren wilderness where God makes a covenant with the Israelite people. God enters into this covenant relationship. Israel becomes the bride of God. And if we continue reading in verse 6, it goes on and says, 
the Lord says, I am the one who provided for you in the wilderness. So in this land where no one travels, let alone lives, God is saying, I provided every one of your needs. The quail, the manna, the water from the rock, protection from all of your enemies. The Lord provided. But then it gets better. Verse 7, God says, I'm the one who brought you into a fertile land. And I love the Hebrew word behind that uh, phrase, fertile land. A very wooden translation of it actually is garden land. And if you're a reader of the Bible, immediately when we hear that word garden, what do we think of? (laughs) The Garden of Eden. This lush place of provision, God brought Israel into a garden land where, again, every need was fulfilled, but most of all, it's where the presence of God dwelt. And so, Orchard let's be in awe of the way that God has provided for Israel up until this point. He brought them up out of the land of slavery, delivered them from their enemies. Then God brought them into a barren wilderness, entered into a covenant relationship with them, provided every one of their needs, and then he brings them into the promised land, driving out all of their enemies, and God is dwelling in the land with Israel. I'm blown away at God's faithfulness and God's goodness and God's blessing. But if we look in here, how did Israel respond to his goodness and blessing and faithfulness? It wasn't with faithfulness. Instead, they responded with idolatry. Look at verse 5 and verse 8. It says they followed, quote, worthless idols. And that worthless idol that they traded in God for was this God Baal. Hebrew is pronounced that way. We say in English, Baal. However you want to say it, they traded this all-glorious God for a worthless idol. Over and over and over again, God has provided and he has shown himself faithful. He is worthy of devotion. He is worthy of fidelity. He is worthy of worship. Yet God's people committed the worst trade in the history of the world. They traded in their glorious God for this worthless idol. And here today, I think a valid question to ask is, why are idols worthless? What are wrong, what's wrong with idols? Well, for one, they are not divine. They, are not, uh, they cannot save you. They cannot provide for you. They are not life-giving. The only thing that idols are, really unsatisfying, they bring judgment and they bring condemnation. They bring disappointment. In church family today, I think it's very easy to point the finger at Israel and say, Israel, how could you do this? How could you do this? But aren't we tempted to do the same exact thing? Here we are. God has been so faithful to us. He has been so good to us. If we think about all the ways that God has been faithful to us as a church community, right? He has given us salvation from our enemies, Satan, sin. He's delivered us from death. He has allowed us to go into this covenant relationship with him. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. God provides for every single one of our needs. God gives us hope for eternal life. Yet like Israel, like the people of Judah, we too often say, 
I think I might make a trade. I think I'm going to exchange our glorious God for worthless idols. And this passage, I think, teaches us a really important concept. Forgetting the goodness of God is the first step in committing adultery. First step of committing idolatry, which is adultery, is forgetting the goodness and the blessing and the faithfulness of God, right? Think about it. As soon as you and I forget that God has saved us from our sin and from eternal death, right, the door to idolatry opens. As soon as we forget that God has given us this all-satisfying relationship with him, the, the door of idolatry opens in our hearts. As soon as we forget that, hey, we have hope for eternal life on the new heaven and new earth, the door to idolatry begins to creep open. And so this leads us to our first application that I want us to really implement into our lives. People of God, let us not forget about the goodness, blessing, and faithfulness of our God. Graduates, as you guys head off, many of you are going off to college. Some of you are staying. I plead with you, don't forget about the goodness of God. I know every single one of you quite well. And each of you has tasted and has seen the goodness of our God. Let us not forget because as soon as you forget about his goodness, we become prone to commit idolatry. In Orchard Hill Church, the same goes for us. Let us not forget how good God has been to us. This leads us to our second observation. Jeremiah 2, 9 through 13 makes it obvious that forgetting God's goodness leads to forsaking. If you look in verse 9, God really begins to bring these legal charges against the nation of Israel. He says, therefore, so in light of their infidelity to the covenant, I bring charges against you again. This isn't the first time. So think of this as a courtroom scene. God is bringing charges against his own bride, Israel. And the heavens, as verse 12 says, are his witnesses. Then in verse 10, God says to Israel, go to the coast of Cyprus. That is, as far west as you can. So Jeremiah was writing to people in Jerusalem. So when the Lord says, go to the coast of Cyprus, that means go west until you hit the Mediterranean Sea, hop in a boat and go to the coast on the islands of Cyprus. And God says, see if any nation has done anything as outrageous as you. And the answer is no, they haven't. But then God says, don't just go to the coast of Cyprus, the far west. He says, go to Kedar, that is the far east, and see, has any nation done anything as outrageous as you? And again, the answer is no. And verse 11 tells us what that outrageous act was. Here we see it again. Verse 11, my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. And so for a second time here, God is accusing his own bride of committing the worst trade in the history of the world. They have traded in their almighty, glorious God for worthless idols. They have traded in the all-powerful, capital G-O-D, for a powerless 
lowercase g-o-d. They have traded in their eternal God for a temporary God, an infinite God for a finite God. They're trading in the creator God for a created God, a glorious God for a God that doesn't even really exist. They have committed the worst trade in history. But again, to bring it to the 21st century, or to tell again, we may not bow down to Baal, but we probably are tempted to bow down to other idols, aren't we? So a question I want to ask you today is what idol in life might you be tempted to bow down to? What are you tempted to substitute God with in your life? Where do you find hope? Where do you find meaning? Where do you find joy? Where do you find purpose? Where do you find satisfaction in an area that is not God? Oftentimes, we as God's people settle for a terrible substitute. Sometimes we exchange a relationship with the all-powerful God to pursue the idol of power. Other times, I feel like many Christians today buy into the lie that we need to uh, pursue the idol of greed. Others pursue the idol of comfort. And many others pursue the idol of pleasure. Others pursue this idol of getting a relationship even though it might not be honoring to the Lord. So what is that idol for you that causes you to turn your back on the one true God? What do you devote your life to? This leads us to our second application. Let us be a church and a group of graduates who do not forsake God for worthless idols. You know, the one thing I hate about life is there are never tradebacks. Right? If you think about that terrible trade that you committed in your life that we thought about at the beginning of the service, usually there's no chance for tradebacks. Right? You can't trade back the tuna fish sandwich. There's no trading back Babe Ruth. There's no trading back the Louisiana Purchase. Right? But the good news this morning is that our God is a God of tradebacks. And that if we are a person in this sanctuary today who has forsaken the one true God for a worthless idol. The good news is today God is inviting you to trade that worthless idol back. You can make that trade. And that is the good news and that is what I am encouraging us all to do today. Our God is a God of second chances. Our God is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of mercy. And so no matter what we betrayed God with, today, if that is you, Maybe today is the day that you need to trade back your worthless idol in exchange for the glorious, glorious God. Now, as we get to verse 13, it is my favorite verse, and I feel like it is the summarizing verse of this whole chapter. God says this. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now God illustrates the foolishness of Israel's trade with an analogy, with this illustration that every person in the ancient Near East would have understood. 
Now, because we don't live in the ancient Near East, we might not understand this. And so I want to take a minute and explain this. If you've never been to Israel, uh, Israel is very dry. Behind me will be this picture of what Israel looks like, the majority of the country. There are some fertile areas, uh, but much of it looks just like this, barren rock dry rock. You can't find water here if you had a hundred years. It is dry, dry, dry. And if you've been to Israel, you know exactly what I am talking about. Furthermore, it's like 110 degrees. So the last two weeks of heat in West Michigan, nothing compared to Israel heat. So in light of this context, in light of this culture, what does God say to Israel? He says, I am the spring of living water. If you've been to Israel, the picture behind me is a place that you probably have gone to. It is uh, in En Gedi, in the wilderness of En Gedi. Um, and so if you've, again, gone with Orchard Hill, you probably went on a hike through the barren wilderness, the first picture. Dry, 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 dry. There's no even glimpse of water. But all of a sudden, you get to this beautiful spring here. And the Hebrew, the word is Maim Kaim. And translated living water. And so God says in a dry world, in a world where people are dying of thirst, when in a world where people are searching for life, I am the living water. This is such a beautiful illustration of who our God is. He is life-giving. He is satisfying. In a world where we are dying of thirst because no idol can satisfy, our God is this cool, refreshing water simply bubbling out of the ground in the middle of the desert. Israel didn't want to drink from the living water. God says instead they made a trade. And in this trade, instead of drinking this living water, it says they dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that can't even hold water. So this is a picture of what a cistern is like. And again, if you got to go to Israel, you probably have gotten to walk inside one of these. A cistern is a big chiseled out room under the ground. And because there is, again, not a whole lot of living water or even wells in Israel, uh, people, the Israelites, dug these cisterns. It'd catch all of the rainfall, like when during flood season, channel it into these big old cisterns. As you can see, this is like nasty water. <laughs> this is full of floaties, full of scum, full of algae. I even see trash in there, and this guy is going for a swim, it looks like. Uh, it was the best image on Google. But... <clears throat> I love this picture because it illustrates how third place cistern water would be. There are three ways to drink water in Israel. One, you could drink from living water. The second picture there. It's by far the best source of water. It's cold, it's pure, it's clean. It's life-giving. The second way that you could drink water is through a well. And, I mean, wells are good enough to keep you alive, but, again, second best. And the third, and by far the worst way to drink water in Israel, is out of a cistern. And so God is saying to these people in Israel, you have the best of the best, the coldest of the cold, the most life-giving water that you could drink, and you have traded in for the worst of the worst. And people of God, when you and I 
live our lives and when we forsake God and pursue other idols for our satisfaction, that is exactly what we are doing. We are trading in the very best of the best, the all-satisfying God, for the worst of the worst. God says those cisterns, if it held water, the water would be like that. But it's empty. And so when we as God's people pursue these idols, they leave us feeling just as empty as the empty cistern. This leads us to our third and final observation. I think this text is screaming at us that the Lord, the one true God, is an all-satisfying God. The Lord our God, the God we get to worship every single Sunday, is an all-satisfying God. We don't have to go running for idols. We don't have to pursue wealth or relationships. We don't have to go pursuing power or anything else because we have our all-satisfying God. And guys, there's a tragedy that I think I see in our culture today. Every single Christian in the sanctuary probably believes that God is all-knowing. Every Christian today probably believes that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, but I think very few Christians here today actually believe, actually trust that God is all-satisfying. And the reason why I say that is because so many of us are so quick to betray the one true God, the God of living water, to pursue things that are much like cistern water. They have big promises, but they can't deliver. It looks like these idols can satisfy our thirst, but in the end, they leave us empty. But again, the good news today is that the one true God is an all-satisfying God. And when I mean all, I mean all. Like, if I say to Stacy, she can have all of the pie, right? She can have all of the pie, every crumb of the pie. If I were to say to Nate, you can have all of the money, I mean he can have all the money, every cent. And so when we say our God is all-satisfying, he is all-satisfying. He, uh, he can fulfill every desire that we have. He can fulfill every nook and cranny of our heart. He can fill every hole that our hearts are longing for. And that is the good news that I want us all to embrace today. Our God is an all-satisfying God. And that leads us to our third and final application. As God's people, let us find our full satisfaction in our all-satisfying God. I have never met one single person who has a vibrant relationship with God that is not satisfied in life. Not a single one. However, I've met so many people who have everything health and wealth and power and position and good looks and relationships and everything that we could ever ask for, but they don't have a relationship with God. I've seen a lot of those people not very satisfied in life. Not a single person who has a vibrant relationship with God, even if they have nothing else. I've never seen one unsatisfied. And so graduates, as you guys head off to college or the workforce or wherever you go in life, again, my hope and my prayer is that you will find your satisfaction in God alone. In God alone, that you'll find your joy in him, your hope in him. I pray that you'll find your purpose in him, in him alone. 
And church family, the same goes for you. May we be a church who is so fully satisfied by the one true God. Because here's the beautiful part. When we as graduates and when we as a church family are so fully satisfied with the one true God, when we become tempted in life to make the worst trade of all time, we are going to be so content with the one true God that we are able to say, no thanks. I have something so much better. And so people of God, let us be fully satisfied by the one true God. God Almighty, we come before you today and we first confess our sin to you because we, like Israel, have turned our backs on you. We have forsaken you, the spring of living water, and we have dug our own cisterns. We've lived life the way that we want to live life because we think it's going to satisfy. But God, so many hearts here today are broken. So many people here today have lived their lives chasing after idols, things that think they will fill them up. But God, the position and the feeling of their hearts and minds, our bodies, are telling them and testifying to them right now, God, that they can't satisfy. But God, we've been reminded through song and through the word that you are good, you are faithful, that you are all satisfying. And so God, today we choose to pursue you. We choose to forsake our idols. And today we make a commitment to do another trade back, to trade back anything that we've been pursuing trade back anything that we have been devoting our lives to so that we can pursue you. You are life-giving. You are thirst-quenching. And God, you are a good, good God. So God, give us forgiveness, give us your spirit, and give us your love. And may you satisfy every longing of our hearts here today. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And together we say,